welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Today is the second episode of my Three Men of Color Redefining Fatherhood series. My guest today is Charles Jackson II, a black man who grew up in Florida. Charles served the U.S. Marine Corps, works as a field security officer for Jacobs, and is founder of the Relational Leadership Network and co-founder of Yuva For Me, a marriage coaching business with his wife, Zonette. I met Charles on LinkedIn when he asked if he could interview me for his Relational Leadership Network series. Hello, Charles. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Marie, how about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And this time I get to interview you, which is exciting. Yes, I'm (laughs) really excited and humbled (laughs) to be on your show. I know this endeavor is sort of new and I commend you on stepping out and expanding your reach by now creating this platform where you can talk about grit and resiliency with different folks. I think it's amazing and I've enjoyed the first two episodes so far. Thank you. Well, you are one of my inspirations to start this. So I'm really grateful to you for planting seed in my mind. So let's start by talking about how you're quarantining and how has COVID-19 affected you? I know you're in Florida, which is one of our the most number of <laughs> cases, right? Right. <laughs> so I'm faring pretty well. Uh, we've been able to stay healthy, my family and I, which consists of my, my wife, Zanette, my two sons, Jathan and Jaden. No symptoms, no signs, no sickness through this entire time. Um, We shut ourselves in like everyone else in the beginning, and I would only leave the house for work. I did notice that it was a huge strain on the family in the beginning. All of our routines were broken up. We had to adjust to being in the house for so many hours a day together. And what do you do? Who's going to share the TV? Who gets the big screen? And we have two bathrooms, but I still found us fighting over bathrooms and snacks and everything, right? But then also you had these dynamics of because we're spending so much time together, we were seeing sides of one another that we probably didn't know existed or we knew existed, but kind of was able to run from when I go to work. So we really had moments where we had to sit down. We started having what we call Sunday um, conversations where we would sit down and plan our week. But we would talk about some of the things that we were experiencing as far as our relationships. Me and my wife modeled that like I've been noticing that you do this and we we've been having these issues and we would talk through it and that that'd be an example for our sons to do the same because they were just starting to get on one another's nerves and they were fighting and arguing about everything and they're boys 11 and 13 and so you expect some here and there but it got to the point that i felt like it was going to be unhealthy if we didn't intervene right and do something so we started having those sunday conversations but i think also we noticed that the more we stayed in And the more we focus on building our relationships, the closer we've gotten. And our family is actually coming out a lot closer. My relationship with my two boys are a lot more healthier and stronger than they were before. And the same thing with my wife. That is great. I have a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old home with me. And I've been actually surprised by how well they've been getting along. I think you're right. Like in the beginning, we were all thinking, you know, we're going to be quarantining for a month or two. Right. But I think people are sort of settling in and getting used to things. My sons have been cooking together a lot, you know, spending far too much time on their screens, of course. Yeah, that that's about it, too. I've had to set some limitations 
or my youngest, um, Jaden, he likes to be on his device and he'll be there eight hours a day if, if we don't stop him. And so now we set those parameters as far as these are the gadget hours. After that, it shuts down and go play Legos, go play outside with, with your older brother. But yeah, we have to definitely yeah. monitor that screen time. The nice thing about my 13 year old is he's play, he's gone back to playing Fortnite and he can do it with his friends. It gives him some social contact, even though it's on a screen. He's very social, so that's an important thing for him. We we had to take into account that just like adults, our our children, they had to adjust a whole bunch of um, kind of new would be norms. They had a lot of things stripped away from them. Um, a lot of things that gave them structure were taken away. And we had to really pause and say, okay, how can we maintain some of those things that made them kids, right? That maintained that innocence that they had and brought joy to their lives. And so my son was not allowed to play online games prior to COVID. But what we allow him to do is play Fortnite. And I believe it's Minecraft with uh-huh. his cousins. Uh-huh, so we yeah. hear him chatting and talking. All of the cousins downloaded it on their tablets and their phones. And the parents, we, my sisters and I, we make sure that they're using it in the right way. But they have that social connection. And now their relationship with their cousins is stronger than it was before we went into COVID too. So yeah, my son's playing with his cousins as well. Just, yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> One day he was online and he was playing. And I heard my older son say, Jaden, that guy sounds like a grown man. And I would come running. Oh, <laughs> my like, gosh. Who are you playing with? And who are you chatting with? <laughs> my senses went up and I was yeah. like, is he being lured into some type of chat yeah. room? Is somebody going to try and meet him down the street corner and take him? And so that's what we established. Hey, you can play with your cousins and we set it up. <laughs> that, that makes total sense. Can you share with our listeners about your life? So I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, about 15 minutes from the beach, right in the heart of NASCAR and bike week with the motorcycles and spring break over on the beach side. And you just name it, everything that Daytona Beach attracts. And I lived there um, sort of in a rough part of, uh, of town, you know, my upbringing as far as where we were located in Daytona. And but I grew up kind of being an outdoor kid. I love to play basketball every day. My dad bought me a basketball goal and put it outside our house. And like my house became the spot, like all the kids, because we couldn't afford to take the drive out to like the YMCA and, you know, go to an actual wreck. So my house became that wreck for us. And, and it really did establish a sense of community connection now that I look back on it, because parents were OK with their kids hanging out at my house a little later because we were all kind of together. So I would go outside, play basketball. My dad used to make me dirt bikes and build them from scratch, you know, with stuff that he found. He was one of those guys who he would always say one man's trash is another man's treasure. And he was really good with his hands. And he would just make me things that we couldn't afford to buy. But he would build them, make them. And then again, it gave me that sense of just being outside. And I love to be outside. And so I grew up there and I went to school there, high school there. First in my family to actually graduate high school and go off to college. Congratulations. Went to college and in the first two years, I was on a, a music scholarship and messed around and lost my scholarship, not being focused. Started working full time, you know, dove into full time work, met my wife, and then I ended up leaving to go into the military. So when I was 25, I left Daytona Beach, Florida to go into the military and started my military service. I did 10 years on active duty, was in Carolinas a little bit, some Florida duty stations, but everywhere was stateside. And then when I got out, my last duty station was here in Tampa. 
And so my family and I, we took residence up here in Tampa, Florida, and we've been here now since 2014. When you went to college, did you go back to college after the Marines or did you go before? Or? Yeah. So while I was in, I started on my degree using my military tuition assistance. And when I got out in September, I graduated with my bachelor's in October of that same year. So a bachelor's degree in social and criminal justice. I left active duty actually with the aspirations and the hope of going back on active duty as a military chaplain. So in the master's program, trying to get my master's of divinity and finish that up because I was going to go and, and be a military chaplain. But then life kind of hit and there were some, you know, forks in the road where you kind of have to choose. Is, is that what I'm supposed to be doing now? Is it just what I wanted to do? And if so, do I need to pivot and make an adjustment? And, and so I ended up pivoting and making an adjustment and not going back on active duty. But you are pursuing your MDiv now? Yep. I'm probably about eight more classes out from completing wow. that. Yeah, it's it's been a journey, right? We, we talk about being resilient and having some grit. There's been times where I had to pull back and, and stop attending college because things that happen in our life, either illness or work requirement or having to move, you know, again. And, and at sometimes I would say, maybe I don't need to finish this. Maybe it's just one of those things I just need to let go. But then when you look at all the hours you put into it, all of the papers you've written, all of the late, late hours, you're like eight more classes. If it just hangs on the wall in my office, I'm going to accomplish yes, it. And yes, it. <laughs> yes. This morning, my first interview was with a, a rabbi who actually became a rabbi at the age of 35. Nice. Yeah, okay. she, was, she was a lawyer before and she's a, an activist as well. And yeah, okay. so I think that was really interesting. She came to it a little bit later in life. So Absolutely. Yeah. It's never too late. Yeah. It's never too late now. So how are you feeling about what's happening in our world, specifically Black Lives Matter and the highly public deaths at the hands of police? And especially I didn't realize your degree was in criminal justice. You probably have a lot of unique perspectives on that. Yeah, so I, in high school, like I say, my aspirations were to go to college, become a police detective. Like I love to watch detective stories and detective movies, Sherlock Holmes type stuff. And like, I love that. And I love watching crime movies for the sake of watching how they conduct their investigations, paying attention to detail and being able to connect the dots and the puzzles. After I got out of the, was getting ready to get out of the Marine Corps, I was, I was pursuing a career in law enforcement. And at the time, you know, the tensions were starting to rise with cops and, and within the communities. There had already been a couple deaths of black men at the hands of cops. And so there was a little uncertainty there. If I still wanted to go down that road, I would be honest. But I had a couple offers before I took it, kind of in praying and doing some self-reflection. I felt like it wasn't the time for that. And so I, I turned down those offers. You know, fast forward now, I'm doing leadership development consulting. My wife and I, we are marriage mentors and marriage coachings throughout various platforms. But fast forward now to all of the civil unrest and everything that is going on. The reason that I wanted to go into law enforcement was not just to be a detective to solve crimes, but I wanted to sort of bridge the gap between the community and the police to be one of those good cops that are embedded into the community and knows people by name and they know me by name, but that began to seem like, like a fantasy. Like that's not even possible, Charles. Like you might get yourself killed, right? So when I saw what happened with George Floyd, I grew up in a way where I was determined to not allow myself to just be judged by my skin color. And so I wanted to present myself as a positive contributor to society. And I went out my way to do that. And a lot of stuff that we experienced in the black community 
and that was going on around me. I think I tried to even block out. When I saw George Floyd and the manner in which he was killed, that was the first time in a long time that I had cried and felt such a wave of emotion seeing somebody killed. Previously, it was watching and reading about Emmett Till and seeing those images and hearing his mom share her story about, you know, why she decided to take those nails off the coffin and let her son be put on display. And then now George Floyd, I I sat there and I, I cried, literally tears running down my eyes, running down my cheeks because of everything that I tried to suppress and block out and all of the striving that I had done trying to just make people see a black man in a different light and hopefully that sparks change, it just came down on me. And I was like, I cannot step out of my black skin. I've served in the military and people as a black man will open the door for me when I'm in uniform, Marie. They will buy me meals. Son, don't get up, don't pay. I got it. I'm like, well, sir, we wow. ordered steak and lobsters and <laughs> like, this bill is about to be... <laughs> Don't worry about it. You serve, you protect. We got your meal, right? In the corporate space, you know, being in leadership roles, respected, and I've had some accomplishments and achievements and in my community serving. But at the end of the day, I'm walking down the street in black skin. I could not escape all of the negative associations with being a black man, regardless of how much I tried and all the effort I put in. And as I sat there and I watched George Floyd's incident, All of that just came out and all of the pressure and the weight that I've been Mm -hmm. carrying, Mm -hmm. trying to be a positive contributor to society, but yet feeling like I had failed hit me. And I, and I sat there as a 37 year old man, which is, I was sad for him. I was sad for his family, but there was a lot of pain and regret and just anguish that came out as I watched it. Yeah. Do you still think about possibly going into law enforcement again? I mean, does it make you... Think about it again. I mean, really, they could use someone like you. Yeah. So I did what I did. I told him I wasn't going to be accepting an active duty type position full time. But they have reserve deputies. Mm. And reserve deputies is kind of like a reservist in the Marine Corps. You have a certain amount of hours that you either volunteer or you can get paid for. And so I asked them to keep my name and my application on file. Should I feel that my life will allow me to serve the community in that way? Um, so, yes, I am still open to it. Mm-hmm, right. Or maybe some some kind of training that you could do. I don't know. Leadership training with police chief. Yes, because, um, you know, my my heart and my passion is really for a more connected world. And I think it starts within the context of our communities. We spend so much time working and we spend so much time thriving to make a better life. And, you know, some of us within the home, we have to have multiple people in the home working just to maintain a certain lifestyle. And I think we spend so much time just working, Marie, that we don't really focus on community. We don't go to those community meetings. We don't we don't get involved like we should. And so when I think about community and I think about what the police is supposed to mean to the community as far as maintaining good order and discipline, I would love to be able to go in and be one that brings the perspective to those individuals who carry that badge, who have raised their hand and say they're going to serve and protect as one on the other side of a whole bunch of injustices, but yet still have the compassion to say, I'm extending my hand of trust. Let's see what we can do better. Now, from a leadership standpoint, I can teach practical practical tips and principles to help leaders better lead. But we first have to start with making meaningful connection. And that's where I would start. And I would then challenge police chief and our mayors when we talk about police reform to look at 
the individuals amongst their ranks. I'll share something with you. As I was going through that process of becoming a law enforcement agent, I had cops, right, share with me in confidence that, man, some of these, these, these individuals that I work with, I know that they took the badge and went through the training just so that they can continue to oppress us so that they can force their. Yep. And they, they said, you know, we, we see it in the way that they handle blacks when they go into those communities versus when they get called to a different neighborhood. Um, we, we, we hear it when they talk in private, right? Some of the, the hate and how they feel about blacks and, you know, just be careful what you're getting into, but they're in it and they're trying to figure out how to navigate it. You know, do I rat? Do I tell? What do I say? What do I do? And it's an indictment to me, a, to those who know that those bad seeds are within their ranks, yeah. either just officer to officer or police chief to officer, mayor to police, like within those ranks to see it and know it because individuals in the, who've been in the news for these unjustified slayings of blacks, you look back at their record and there's been complaints. It wasn't the first time. Yeah. It wasn't the first incident. So why haven't they gotten help or gotten out of there? Why are they still able to carry that badge? So I would like to be, one that can go in and challenge and teach, just challenge that status quo that they've accepted that it is just the way it is, right? And then just really reform from that aspect. Just start with the people because at the end of the day, we all have that same heart beating in our bodies, right? That will allow us to have empathy for somebody who doesn't look like us and act like us. We just need to break down some of those walls and some of that ignorance that we've either learned, right? And adapted through it being taught to us or just picked up on by way of life so that we can actually um, start to change and see people differently. You're a true optimist. I'm trying to <laughs> yes, be. <laughs> I know. You know, I really feel for black police chiefs because mm. they're like, for example, in Portland, we had a, a black woman police chief until last year. And then it, she was placed by a white woman. And about a month ago, the, the white police chief actually stepped down and gave her position to one of the men on the force who's a black man and did it intentionally because of the problems we're having with police right now with the protests. It's been getting pretty horrible here in Portland with the protests. There's, you know, they're using a lot of tear gas and even the governor and the mayor and the governor have both said no more tear gas unless it's a riot. So then of course the police declared a riot so they could use the tear gas. But I really feel for these these people who are um, in that position because they're ah it's just it's a it's a huge tall order. <laughs> it is, <laughs> you know. It is, Marie. You you're exactly right, and that's why I think stepping outside of yourself and just seeing things from your point of view and really trying to see the other side of the coin is the only way that we can actually have change because that gives us understanding. Like when I'm able to step outside of my shoes and my life and my world and my peripheral right view of the world and see somebody else's, even if it's not, I'm not fully immersed, immersed in it, I can start to say, okay, man, they're in a tough spot too. Right. And I know we're calling for police reform and we're saying, you know, get these, officers out of here, but it's it's not as easy as that. Yeah. And to be a, a black police chief, I, I remember even being called for serving in the military sometimes um, a traitor because it's like, man, people who I grew up with when I would go back home and they know I'm in the military or they see me in uniform would say, why would you go fight a white man's war? And I have to process that. Like, am I? Am I a traitor? What sure. What am I doing? But then I know what my values are. I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's not for the accolades. It's because there is a threat to my family, my friends, and the place that I call home. 
right? And I'm not one to just sit back and not do something. And so I go serve in the military. And so I have to process that. But at the same time, man, do they see me as um, being a traitor? So a police chief, he has to now deal with those who are looking up to him for leadership. He has to think about the bad seeds, the good seeds. He has to think about the push from the community saying we want change and he has to think about his family and you know you have to navigate all of those things so you're right they are in a place where you know one they need our support they need our prayers they need some people around them that can advise them and guide them because not one person is going to have all the answers so they really need a diverse group of people to speak to them so that way the the change is not one-sided I agree. Definitely. So as a father, are you talking more to your sons about race now? And what are you talking, what are you saying to them about the protests and about the recent deaths? Has that conversation changed at all? No, it's probably just more often and more frequent than before. Um, we let them sit down and watch certain documentaries. We'll listen to certain, you know, podcasts in the car while we're driving uh, versus some of the other stuff that we might engage on with. We would just be intentional about having those conversations now, seeing how they're affected by it, seeing what they're picking up from friends or in the media, what they're learning to make sure that they have the right perception of things. But my biggest goal, because some of the stuff that is going on, Marie, and, and I hate to see it, Blacks are saying, you know, cut off whites and don't shop at these stores and we need to come together. And I got a saying, and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I've quoted several times and I'm writing it in my book that choosing sides will only further divide. And I don't want to have these race conversations and social injustice conversations with my son in a way that get them to now hate themselves. Right. Look at other somebody who doesn't look like them and begin to hate them because, oh, before you hate me, I'm going to hate you. It, you know, because they're 11 and 13 before 14 of December and they have to process that. And as I'm having these conversations with them, the last thing that I want to do is say something that they will take the wrong way or it will cause them to hate somebody else that doesn't look like them or, or start to get angry. Even though I'll admit as a man, sometimes I get angry when I think about some of the things that I've um, witnessed that has been done to me and that has happened in our country. But I, I try to shield and protect them from that. So we have a frequent conversations about what's going on, but I try and make it constructive and healthy and not leave too much to interpretation because, again, they may run out and be like, black people all together and you know we don't like white people because my daddy said that they don't like us and I'm like no no that's not what I said children can sometimes simplify things can't they yeah <laughs> right yeah. I was talking to you for 15 minutes and that's what you got <laughs> so. yeah yeah I can relate do you remember when your parents first talked to you about race and what were your early memories of of knowing that you were that you had a different color skin I do and my mom it was more you treat everybody with love and respect and you treat them kindly. Uh, you let people get to know you and your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your character will shine and you'll be okay. And that was my mom's message. Every now and then, my dad's message wasn't like that. He had experienced some things and I don't think he had time to heal from it and let it go. It was, you know, you can't trust them so-and-so bleep bleep people, mm -hmm. right? right? And I'm like, what people? You know, all of them... Bleak, bleak people that you get you get you go to school with because we were sent to a white predominantly white school you know you be careful out there and you know how do they treat you and if any of them you know you let me know he had a little more anger and so his conversation was more so don't let anybody push you around don't let anybody call you anything that 
you know, is disrespectful or degrading. You stand up and you defend yourself and be ready to fight. And I'm like, okay, dad. So I had to process what mom was saying and what dad was saying. I think I got in one fight for being called the N-word outside of that. Not that I was only called the N-word once, but all those other times it didn't lead to fighting because I was able to process what was going on a little differently. Unfortunately, I was. I was able to say, okay, they don't know me. That's just ignorance. I'm not going to get in a fight. I don't want to get in trouble. But um, yeah, that was the two talks that I had. My dad was, do what you got to do. Don't take no crap. <laughs> My mom was more so... Let people get to know you, baby. Oh, wow. That's really a contrast. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And you were, you so you were bused to a predominantly white school. Is that right? I was. Yeah. How did that come about? And what was that experience like for you? You know, I think it was one of those things where there was a elementary and a middle school, like right behind me. I could have walked to, I could, we used to play in the field of the middle school uh, from my house because it was that close. We got shipped up to a predominantly white school. I'm, I'm not sure why. It wasn't always the case. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so when it did change, I was around third grade when I first got there. And it was like three buses of us and we went to the school. And I remember getting off, uh, Marie, and you know, the white kids just kind of look at you like you have like a diseased leprosy body. Do I remember going on field trips, the ones that I was able to go on because some of them we couldn't even go on because there was fees. But when I would, if it wasn't somebody that I was friends with, you would go to sit down and the kids would like move so far in the corner with their backpacks and their stuff. Like they didn't want you to touch them. It was like this phobia. And I was in third and fourth grade when I was noticing that when we would sit down at the cafeteria, they would prefer that we sat on our table and then, you know, they sat at their table. However, I had an incident where I met uh, this kid. His name is Sean McHugh. He and I became friends somehow. We had a, an incident in the classroom and we were talking and it just grew into this wonderful relationship. So much so that his parents invited me to his house. I even went to a sleepover at his house. And I remember my dad because my mom was OK with it. My dad's like, <laughs> you're going where to sleep over whose house? These, you know, again, bleep, 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 uh, right. mix up, you know, white words in there. And I'm like, dad, you know, he's my friend. And yeah, dad can understand it. Anyway, so we, we became really close. And I began to see, again, that not all people feared me as a black man or my black skin or was going to treat me that way. And that really broke down a lot of barriers for me, having that connection and that relationship with Sean and his family. But when I was at, at the elementary school, there were plenty of times where I knew being a black kid and, and coming from where we came from, our neighborhood wasn't the best. And a lot of those kids, their upbringing might not have been like mine. They were a little rough. They even tried to get me to side with, hey, we have to stick together. If I got into it with somebody that was black, it was okay. Like, you know, it's just one-on-one, you work it out. But if you get into it with somebody that was white at their school, it was everybody. We're not going to let them, you know, again, them words, um, derogatory words, you know, you don't ever let a, a white person talk to you like that. And it was that they differentiated between getting into it with a black person and getting into it with a white person. And I was processing this all through elementary, but my relationship with Sean completely changed that, that view. And then I had a teacher who took me under her wings and she got me into reading and writing poetry. And I ended up being able to go and travel with her at different schools and, and, and read poetry. She invited me into her home. And so I saw a different, gentle, softer side of the human race from somebody who didn't look like me. And it really did help shape my view of the world and and, and different people and races and and the part I played in it. But if I would have just went with the status quo and the norm, 
even when we played basketball, we went to the basketball court. It was the black against the white. And I don't even know how we did that. It was the black kids against the white kids in basketball. And every day, that's what we were looking to do at recess. And we couldn't wait for it. It was that same group until it got to the point that we started getting into altercations. And the coach was like, all right, no more basketball. So it was some of the earlier experiences. So how about now? I know that I remember Zonette saying that you have quite a, quite a lot of white friends. And is the experience different with your black friends and your white friends? Do you feel like you can be yourself? Because I know that a lot of black people have felt betrayed when they're friends with mm. white. They feel like they thought they could trust someone and then they, you know, the white person shows their true colors. And- yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I have a good sense of who's for me. And because of that, if I'm calling someone friend, they are literally a friend of mine. We've either gone through something we've experienced. I don't meet a person on the first day, black or white, and automatically they're my friend. And, you know, most of us don't. So if I'm calling them friend, if I'm going over their house, they're cooking for me, I'm cooking for them. I'm willing to have vulnerable conversations and be intimate with them, allow them to watch my kid. Then I trust them. I trust their character. I'm not saying that they're perfect, but their character, they've shown me that I can be myself around them and that they see Charles and not necessarily judge me like they would judge this group of blacks. Right. And so I do have so many friends um, that are not blacks. I have black friends. I have white friends. And I'm glad I do Indian, Chinese. Like I'm a very eclectic person with my music, with my dress, with my movies, everything about me. And I realized in being that way, I'm not just like one sided. And I know one thing that helped that was going to like international day at my kids school where you would see people in their different dress and their food and artifacts from their country and do their dances and the way they would talk with so much pride about it. And I thought, man, would I, you know, have that much pride in being black, you know, being an African-American? And that opened my eyes to these different cultures. And the more I immersed myself and got to know people who didn't look like me, the more richer my life became. And so when I call somebody friend, black, white, Puerto Rican or Asian, they have proven to be a friend. And that's why they have that right, that privilege to enter into that space with me. So my relationships have been great. Honestly, I haven't had a person that I call friend betray me or or do anything that I felt like, man, I thought I knew them, right? But now their true colors are showing and they think I'm just low down good for nothing. I haven't had that experience. So looking at your LinkedIn, it looks like you have four jobs. Are you still employed at Jacobs? I am. You are. So, so you have you have your Jacobs, you have your marriage coaching, mm-hmm. you have your leadership, and then your dad. That's a really important part too. So how do you yeah. do it all? How do you manage it all? Since coming out of the military, because leadership is near and dear to me, begun a leadership consulting network, right? Where I just wanted to create a platform where we can just share practical tips and tools and resources for leaders. Like that's my passion and I love doing that. I saw in the military the effect that I had on those underneath me. I took some of those same skills that I learned while serving in the military. Every job that I've been at, I've been able to rise to a leadership position as I look back over my life going all the way back to high school. I remember starting on the loading docks of a, of a produce company, you know, all full transparency. I even got that job because I kind of told a fib. I showed up with my resume, dressed up nice and neat. And I told a guy at the docks that, you know, I was supposed to have an interview with a gentleman, but I don't see him anywhere. And, you know, but I have a resume and I wonder if you could speak to me. And I ended up speaking with his guy and he interviewed me on the spot. He was like, oh, it was probably Mike. He's off today. Let's sit down and talk. And I was like, oh, Lord. So we sit down, we talk, but I needed a job. And I saw in the paper that they were hiring. 
So I get the job loading dock and I work my way up to being in a leadership position from the warehouse to customer liaison to the corporate liaison to being a leader right next to the boss. And so just all throughout my life, I've been able to go from very, so I took all of that that I've learned in those various leadership roles and then working with other great leaders. And we begin to develop the relational leadership model. And it's just built on the premise that healthy relationships amongst our team and supervisors are going to increase work productivity because you're going to have happy employees that are working with each other and amongst one another, which will increase business and boost bottom line. So we have a model for that. But, you know, coming out of the military, you need employment. So I started a full-time job with a company called Jacobs. Initially, they were like an engineering company, but now they are a solutions company. They, they do it all. And I enjoy working with them so much that I want to continue to grow in that company, but also work on my leadership stuff, you know, kind of part-time on the weekends and, and when time allows. But my wife and I, you're right. We also probably about four years ago started a marriage and family platform where we provide premarital coaching and we provide couples coaching and therapeutic type coaching for people who are dealing with the relationships, whether it's father and son or mother and, and child, like to help, whether it's blended family. Those are our passions. And we do our passions on our own time. Now, down the road, would I love to allow that to be something that I'm able to just focus on full time? Absolutely. And I have a plan to do that. But for now, I'm kind of enjoying that space where I have to balance those things and not allow them to get in and interfere with being a dad and a good husband like I teach and preach everybody else. Sometimes I have my moments and my wife reminds me, don't put anything on your calendar because we need some time. And I'm like, oh, okay, yes, ma'am. So um, that's a good lead into my next question, which is how do you like to spend your spare time? Maybe beyond your passion businesses, what do you do for your for enjoyment? I love to kayak, kayak fishing. Um, of course, I don't know if you know people consider reading a an enjoyment oh, <laughs> or a pastime. Uh, yeah, that's but one I of really my like to ones. read. I okay. really like to read. I like to learn. And when I take personality tests and strength tests, it always say that I'm a teacher and I'm an yeah. educator. And so I guess that's why I like to soak up knowledge, so then I can turn around and then share it. But I like to do that. My family and I, being in Florida, we take full advantage of all of the outdoor activities. Uh, that we have here. So we like to go to the recreation parks, throw the ball. I set up the nets and we do a little t-ball with my sons playing basketball. That's another sport. I've been a coach um, for a great deal of my life since high school. I've been able to coach different rec teams and stuff like that. So we like to play basketball and I like to coach basketball every now and then when I'm able to fit that into my schedule. So that's something else that I enjoy doing. What's your favorite basketball team? I grew up as a Magic fan, you know, here in Florida. Right. And a Magic fan, love Penny Hardaway and Uh uh, Shaquille O'Neal, Nick Scott, and that whole crew. But I like to watch Andre Iguodala. I like to watch Steph Curry. I like to watch Draymond Green. I like to watch. I like to watch LeBron James. You know, Uh he. You can't deny that he's one of the greatest. Kawhi Leonard. A lot of the guys that play great defense, because I'm a defensive mindset coach so if you're an individual on a basketball team and you play great defense i'll be one of your biggest fans because i like great defense i like to watch the warrior style of basketball i like to sit back and watch somebody like um popovich coach spurs just more simply so i'm a, I'm a fan of the game all uh-huh. the way around yeah mm-hmm. you'd like my 13 year old son he knows all the statistics for all the players of all the teams <laughs> <laughs> but he plays the, the nba 2k 
the video game. And I just read last week that Damian Lillard's going to be on the cover of that next the next year, which is really well, exciting for him. Well deserved. So, yes, that yes, is well yes. deserved. Yeah. He's another one who I love to watch. Yeah, play. he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, my son's gone to a basketball. He leads a basketball camp here. And he got to meet him and. Oh, yeah. wow. Nice. Yeah. I mean, most of it's other people running it, but then he comes in and he, you know, takes pictures with the kids. And yeah, yeah, yeah. that's always he's, cool. He's a great, great hero for Portland kids. Definitely. Yeah. So, I, like, yeah. I like him. What is a book that you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to people? So I just read Focus, Daniel Coleman. He talks about how we get so distracted by things throughout the day and even throughout the weeks that if we can just begin to narrow our focus, right? Because we're, we're, we're trying to do so much in this day and age. There's so many things that we want to do and aspire to do. And even in just our day, what we need to get done, we get, get distracted so easily. And he talks about the power of focus. And, and so I've been intentional about planning my day, having a schedule, tucking away anything that would distract me, you know? So during certain hours, my phone is not near me. Or, you know, when I'm working from home now, making sure that the TV isn't on all the time behind me. Now I am intentional about taking on breaks and stuff, but that's been a, that's been a good book that I read recently. And I, I really enjoyed learning from that one. And then also my friend, Valerie Alexander wrote a book on success and, and being happy in the workplace and success as a second language. And I've been reading through those books and I've been enjoying those as well. Those are like great. I think I need that focus one. My 17 year old told me the other day, multitasking is your favorite word. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then so you need to read Focus yes. by Daniel Coleman. Yes. Okay. Okay. I will look for it. What is something that you wish people understood about you? I am a very passionate person. I'm a very optimistic person. And sometimes I'm, I'm very structured and I can be very firm. But at the end of the day, my heart and my passion is really to build healthy relationships with people. So I, I don't want to ever come across as someone who's not being optimistic or who cannot sit and reason and, you know, be sympathetic or empathetic because when I'm trying to get stuff done, I'm like really structured and I'm really, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. And sometimes I have to pause and go back and be like, how are we doing? Are we okay? Is, is everything good? You know, kind of get that check in because the military mindset sometimes kick in, even in the house, I'll come home and I immediately kick in and, and, and just go. And she's like, whoa, you are in Marine mode. You need... <laughs> You just got to take a minute to breathe. You didn't even breathe. Like, like my mind is always going sometimes and, and I'm sitting thinking about what do we need to do this? What can I do? This is out of order. One of my sayings is there's a, a place for everything and everything's in, in its place. And so I come through the house and anything that I see out of order, I'm trying to put it in order, you know? And so, yeah, I don't, I don't want that to be taken as, you know, one who is not uh, able to empathize and just relax and chill. Um, sometimes I can be I guess so serious that my wife tell me, you know, do you ever have fun? Even when you're having fun, you know, when I look at you, you doing what you say you love, but you don't even smile. And I'm like, what? I'm enjoying myself right now. Oh, I guess on the inside, you're turning flips. <laughs> she gives me a hard time now that I think about it, Marie. You know, I might have to get some counseling about this. <laughs> you might. You might have to find a marriage coach. <laughs> I so I'm going to go back and watch my videos oh and see what gosh. I would say to somebody else. Yeah, that's right. Good <laughs> idea. I can relate to that totally. No, I'm not a Marine. I'm not. I'm, you know, I, I where I bet you are much better at things is keeping everything neat. I'm not a neat Nick at all, but my mind is constantly going on overdrive and 
like last night I didn't sleep well because I was thinking about all these podcast interviews and all these other things going on. So I can really relate to that. And my poor husband, I was at a social distance happy hour with some friends the other day and, and everybody was teasing me about my multitasking. So <laughs> he gives wow. me a hard time about that. So I get more done that way. I really do. Well, it's a gift. <laughs> It's a gift. You have yeah, a gift. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I know that women are biologically better at doing that because of the way our brains are wired. Correct. Yeah. It's that not always true. a positive thing. Yeah. I guess the setting, time and a place for multitasking, right? I love hearing that story about your wife. Well, when I interview your wife, I'm going to I'm gonna look forward to asking her about that. <laughs> 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 your <first> time. <laughs> right? Yeah. She, oh, my Lord. I hope you have time. <laughs> we, so didn't, we didn't get to where we're at without me learning a lot. You mentioned that you were a musician. What kind of music do you like and what, what's your kind of music? All right. So I started out, of course, listening to hip hop. I used to love like, you know, Run DMC, Run DMC. I used to listen to, you know, Two Live Crew. I grew up on that. Sort of got into the Nas and I love Common and Jay-Z and that group. But then as I got a little older, I started liking country for the sake of the lyrics. Right. I, I enjoy the lyrics, hearing the lyrics in, in the country music. My wife and I, we like to listen to jazz. But yeah, I like all types of music, but I'm a drummer. I'm a percussionist. Ah. I play all types of timpanis, xylophones, uh, you know, snare drum, bass drum. I've played it all. And again, I was able to go to college on a music scholarship until I messed around and wasn't focused and <laughs> lost that scholarship. <laughs> Yeah, my oldest my oldest son is a drummer, and really? um, yeah, and oh, and one of my close friends he he actually drums at our church. I I lead the music at, at my church, the vocals, and okay. plays the drums, and um, so I have gotten. I mean, before my son became a drummer, I don't think I ever really noticed drummers. I didn't really pay wow. much attention to them, but now I really do. Now Absolutely. I feel like if we don't have a drum, I feel like it's missing. It's yes, I listen to music, and I'm always man, the, the drummer's in the pocket or, yeah. man, that drummer's nice. And yeah. my wife be like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know what do you mean? He's, in, he's not, they all sounds the same. Every drummer sounds like, oh, uh, no. Uh, so who's, your, his own so signature who's, who's your favorite drummer? I used to like uh, Travis from um, the band Chili Peppers. I like their drummer. Oh, yeah. He's uh-huh. pretty good. You remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Oh, of course. He uh-huh. used to go <laughs> out in town and do like, those segments where he's at a music store or he's at a candy shop or uh-huh. he's at this. And one day he went into this place and there was bongos and there was xylophones and there was timpanis and there was these like African jump drums and there was cajones and all of this stuff. And I was like, man, you can make music with all these different things that look. And I remember going around my mom's house, like taking different <laughs> pots and tops and cups and different things to make those different sounds that's when i just like fell in love with percussion instruments and and being um yeah being a drummer and i got into my first band when i was in third grade elementary school that we had had a band uh-huh. we could even be in parades now we weren't marching they had oh. us on floats uh-huh. but we, we were in a band and i got to be in a band starting at third grade all the way up until my second year of college but played at churches i played for a few uh-huh. jazz bands and my son, he he's starting to pick up the drums. He Great. plays pretty good now. He has a YouTube channel out there where he plays the drums and wants to inspire other kids. And right now he's playing on the electric set, but I hope to move up and get him a, a bigger full set, an acoustic set one day. Uh-huh. But, you know, where we live, we're kind of close to neighbors. So I, I get him there 
yeah. electric so we can yeah. turn it down. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing yeah. I forgot is that my mom was a drummer. She was a percussionist as well. She played this marimba. Oh, yeah. So me and your family, yeah. your sons, we have a lot in common. Yeah. Basketball yeah. and, yeah. and band. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the drums. Between, all, between my sons, definitely. And then I have a middle son who doesn't do those things. Two of my kids are really into theater. Like he directed his first play right before COVID hit. Do you have any theater background to fit in? <laughs> you know, I've been in some and I've been told that I did pretty good. I haven't gotten any calls. Right? <laughs> it's not you're going to be your fifth job. <laughs> but I was told that, you know, I was I was pretty good. up there. Uh-huh. On the stage. It's funny yeah. because because I am so serious all the time. Well, that is what my wife says. I'm so serious uh-huh. all the time. And I, I can be um, like an omnivore. I can be very like quiet in a room or, you know, I can fit in and have a good time and, you know, maybe even lead a life of the party. Just it really does depend. Right, I really right, can't right. adapt. Right. Um, but because of that, I think the majority of the time I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I'm, I'm, I speak when I have something to say. I don't need you to know that I'm in the room. I enjoy playing the drums because I can be in the pocket. I can be felt and not heard, right, as a good drummer. But at the same time, when I get on a stage and I have to perform as a character or whatever, I really do. I just, I'm a different person. And I've been told that all throughout my life because I've been in a lot of plays, whether it was in church or at school. I do raise my hand for different roles when it comes to acting and stuff. So, um, But I haven't gotten a call out, not just yet. (laughs) There's still time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So where can listeners connect with you online? My social handle is at Relational Leaders. And that's primarily, you know, where we have leadership content. And then also, um, as far as our marriage and family network, that social handle is at YBM Marriages. And you can also go to youbefore.me, which is our website, and, you know, learn about my wife, hear our story, connect with us if you need some type of marriage coaching or counseling or just some good tools and resources that we share for couples. We do a a monthly sort of live Q&A the last Thursday of the month where we sit down and answer marriage questions and relationship questions live, whether you're married, single or whatever. We enjoy enjoy doing that one. And then also on LinkedIn, again, Charles Charles E. Jackson. I do a lot of stuff, again, that we share out there. So those are ways that folks can connect with me. You didn't name one of your boys Charles? I did not. You know, I was a little upset with my father when my wife became pregnant with my son. We had a a bit of a falling out, Marie, because he was my hero. I wanted to be just like my dad. He could do nothing wrong in my eyes all throughout my life. And I wanted to be just like him. I was that kid that my dad was my best friend whenever he left the house. I was at his hip. And then so an unfortunate event happened when I was 16, 17, where he was caught in infidelity. And that just shook me up. Nobody saw it coming. I didn't see it coming. Mom didn't see it coming. Tore the family apart a little bit, right? Mm. We, we worked through that. But it took me about 12 years to really get over it. Now, I had said I, I forgave him. And when I went back home while I was serving, I would speak to him and we would talk. You know, we were hugged and I was happy to see him, but it was not the same. Mm-hmm. It just was not the same. My wife became pregnant. And we were going to have a son. I was like, I'm not naming my kid Charles Jackson. We didn't reconcile things until maybe a year before he passed away, which was last year, 2018, April. He passed away a week before he did. I drove, left Tampa, I drove there and we sat down and I expressed to him for the first time how much I appreciated him, that the man that I was, it was because of him. Mm-hmm. I had held one mistake over his head for so long and I wanted his forgiveness and I wanted to really be able to patch things up and move forward 
like I knew we should have a long time ago. And I have so much regret that I didn't do it sooner. I never called my dad and asked him a single tip for parenting. Now he's taught me a lot because he was always around. I had my dad always around. Mm -hmm. But when I got my son, I never once called and said, dad, what do I do about this? Like I didn't allow him to be a father to me like that after that incident. And even though I had said I forgiven him and I didn't realize that until it was too late, a week before he passed away, we had that conversation. But that's why I did not name my son Charles Edward Jackson the third. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, now when I look back on it, sometimes I'm like, man, I did not do that for the wrong reason, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's good that you were able to have that conversation with him before he passed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Jathan, my oldest son's name is Jathan, and uh, my youngest name is Jaden. How do you think that? you can instill grit or resilience in your children? I think it starts by one model and it. Children are the greatest imitators. They're going to remember more of what you do and model before them than they will what you say, what you preach, what you post, you know, what you even write on the wall. It's what they see you do. And so one, I try and allow them to see me go through difficult. Like I don't protect them. Like we share with them some of the things that we go through and setbacks and some of my hurts, my pains and frustration. I allow them to see that so that they can see how I respond to it. I read the book Grit. Again, that, that shaped who I am because I understand that as we go through things and the more we go through things, like our, our level, our resiliency level begins to rise. And when hard things do come our way, we, we might take a little stumble, but we don't get knocked down as far as we would have had we not continually gone through stuff and overcame it. So I first and foremost, I try and model that. Like when they see me go through something, I try and share it with them, let them see it so that they can see, man, things can be hard and you can get knocked down, but that doesn't mean you're out of the fight. And we get back up and, and we, we keep moving. And then I try and, you know, bring some of that military mindset into them and instill that, you know, <laughs> taking some of the stuff that I learned about, you know, being in battle and, and my son will say sometimes he'll even even quote me around the house. He was like, oh, we just won the battle, but we didn't lose the war. <laughs> and he's like, he's been doing that since he was like nine or 10. I think he's 11 now. But he'll, he'll even tell his brother sometimes when they get into it. Like say they were fighting and wrestling. He's, he's so funny. He'll follow it up, you know, after it's all quiet. Like, you may have won that round, <laughs> but I haven't lost the battle. So... I, again, I try and just practical things I learned in the military, I teach them Yeah. Um, as far as building grit. But then I also teach them that everything that we go through, right, is, is an opportunity for us to learn more about ourselves, learn more about our endeavors, and learn more about the world around us, right? When I fail, when something has failed, either I didn't have the right mindset or I wasn't properly prepared or that which I was trying to accomplish or seeking after it wasn't the right time or I didn't have all the right tools that I needed or the world around me. I get taught about who I need to connect with, who I don't need to connect with, where I need to invest my time and my energy. And so anytime we go through some type of hardship, it's just a really an opportunity to learn. Right. And so those obstacles are just opportunity to learn about yourself, learn about your approach or your endeavor and learn more about the world around you and people around you. Just, is there a story of grit, resilience and connection that inspires you? I talked about being, you know, a, just a diverse person. I like all types of history, right? And one of my favorite things to watch on TV is the, the Alaska, the last frontier, you know, like Browntown people. Believe it or not, 
I learned a lot about grit and resiliency from those guys. Huh, because I've never heard of that. There, they're out there with nothing, you know, building Alaska and, you know, trying to build this settlement and they have nothing. They're living off the land and the stuff that they go through and experience, right? Where the majority of us, we will run out to the store. We will run out to, <laughs> you know, Amazon to get what we need. They are able to overcome day in and day out these obstacles and challenges with just building a home or getting food or trying to find shelter or, you know, a fire or whatever. So I, I love to watch those. Um, that's I get grit from and and mm. inspirations, but then I also like to watch the men who built America on the history, and I love to hear Thomas Edison's story, Rockefeller's story. Um, I love to hear even like those stories. Every now and then, they'll feature some of the people who like Martin Luther King, and then my most favorite one recently, or my favorite one recently to kind of go back and revisit, has been Nelson Mandela. Just thinking about his story, that's one that's at the forefront of my mind right now because I recently went back and revisited and kind of reread his um, autobiography. So yeah, that I pull inspiration from places like that. It really is. I can also read the the life of Michael Jordan, you know, come fly with me. I want to be like Mike. And, and there's so much grit in that, you know, because he was kicked off his high school basketball team. So I get it from everywhere. Uh, that movie, Like Mike, that was one of my mm. son's favorite movies. Oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Have you, have you watched that with your sons? I haven't. Like you should Mike watch it. It's actually a really good family movie. Because we were talking about hip hop earlier, I was wondering if you ever read young adult fiction with your sons. There's a book by by Angie Thomas called On the Come Up, and it's all about hip hop. Okay. Yeah, you should check into it. I'll send you an I'll send you an email about it. Yeah, but, we're uh, listening to Black Brother, Black Brother, and that one is about a kid in middle school and how is two black brothers but one of them is light 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 skin they're just treated differently at the school yeah and so that's what we're we're reading right now or listening to right now but i'm gonna have to check out yeah for your next one that might be a good one i one. mean it gave me a better appreciation for hip-hop because the main uh, character is a girl who's a hip-hop writer and just the poetry that goes into it you know mm, it's like yeah my son is you know he <laughs> he, he he thinks he, he wants to play sports, but he also is like, you know, if that doesn't work, Dad, then, you know, I might be a rapper. And, oh, you know, he well, then calls he himself like white book, raps. Then. And he got a couple. <laughs> really? <laughs> he even wrote one. He wrote one about George Floyd, too, I think. He was like. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like he wrote oh. about six lines. I don't know if he's finished it, but he started writing one. Oh. when we were quarantining about quarantine, but then he also wrote one about George Floyd. But, yeah. You could have him on one of your podcasts and have him recite I know, it. right? <laughs> You can play the drums in the background. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope I get to meet you in person someday when we all can travel again. Yes, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, I'm honored. I, I really enjoy, you know, just following you on your social media outlets and on LinkedIn and your articles and, you know, now this podcast. So thank you for allowing me to to take a moment to share, you know, share my heart, share who, a little bit about me. And I hope it's encouraging and uplifting um, to those who will partake of, of this podcast, Marie. Thank you. And I too hope to meet one day in person. Thank you so much, Charles. I hope you have a great evening. All right. You too. I seriously loved my vulnerable and fun conversation with Charles. I hope I get to meet all the people I'm interviewing on my podcast someday after coronavirus is over. On the next Three Men of Color Redefining Fatherhood episode, I talked to Ken Harge, a black man living in Connecticut who lays tile by day and is a creator and entrepreneur in his spare time. 
During COVID-19, he's been writing a symphony. After falling out with his parents, he's become a father figure to a young man through the Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and subscribe to hear our next episode.